know, and I want you to know, we want to thank you because you play an invaluable role in supporting programs like the one this morning. And if you're not a member yet, we encourage you. We'd love to have you become part of the family. You could speak with our colleagues today on your way out. Today's program, Breaking In, The Rise of Sonia Sotomayor and the Politics of Justice, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And we'd like to thank the Schwartz family for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's give them a hand. <clears throat> I'd also like to recognize and thank New York Historical Society, Rick Reese, and all the Chairman's Council members with us this morning for all their great work and support. Let's give them a hand, too. Thanks. The program this morning will last about an hour and a half and include a question and answer session. And audience members will be invited to approach the two standing mics in the aisles. And we ask that you do this so that everyone in the auditorium can hear you and in our recorded podcast to the greater world that we'll post on our website. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with our speakers whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are thrilled to welcome Joan Biskupic to the New York Historical Society. Ms. Biskupic, Ms. Biskupic has covered the Supreme Court for more than 20 years and is currently an editor in charge for legal affairs at Reuters News. Before joining Reuters in 2012, she was the Supreme Court correspondent for USA Today and the Washington Post. Ms. Bikupic is the critically acclaimed author of several books, including American Original, The Life and Constitution of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, and Sandra Day O'Connor. Her most recent book is Breaking In, The Rise of Sonia Sotomayor and the Politics of Justice. Our moderator this morning is Marcia Coyle, the Chief Washington Correspondent for the National Law Journal, who has covered the US Supreme Court for 27 years. Her reporting has garnered such national journalism awards as the George Polk Award for legal reporting and the Investigative Reporters and Editors Award for outstanding investigative reporting. Ms. Coyle is a regular contributor of Supreme Court analysis to PBS's NewsHour and is the author of The Roberts Court, The Struggle for the Constitution. Before we begin, I just ask that if you have a cell phone, that you turn it off. Any other electro electronic devices, turn off. Please note, um, we ask um, that you don't take photographs. We have a house photographer. He's the only one permitted. And now, please join me in welcoming our guest speakers today. Thank you. This is what happens when you don't have pockets. <laughs> well, I'd also like to welcome you and thank you for sharing your Saturday morning with me and Joan. Uh, I was here a year ago, and I remember uh, how uh, warm and hospitable you were. So uh, it's great to be back in New York City and to be at the New York Historical Society. Now, what you don't see on PBS The News Hour is that I wear glasses when I have to read. <laughs> I long passed this stage, <laughs> as I'm sure you know. We're going to have a delightful morning 
Uh, Joan is a good friend as well as a colleague. And uh, we've been uh, veterans of the Supreme Court for a number of years. Uh, and the Supreme Court is a great place to be a reporter. I don't know if you read about our week. We had an extraordinary week at the Supreme Court. There were uh, numerous applications being filed in voting rights cases, in same-sex marriage cases, and lately an abortion case out of Texas all by groups that were asking the court to put on hold lower court rulings that they wanted to appeal. And on Monday, something happened that I never had experienced. We all line up Monday mornings to get what we call the orders list at the court. And that's when the justices have reviewed cases that uh, they might take, uh, cases that they ultimately deny taking. It's handed out to the reporters in the press room in paper. Uh, usually the first orders list is a stack, a very long uh, list uh, from summer petitions that the justices have looked at. And we were all ready because we wanted to see if there was anything new on seven same-sex marriage cases that the court had. And we're in that press room, we're paging through, we don't see anything. Some reporters quickly tweet, no news today on same-sex marriage. And then another reporter, eagle-eyed with NBC News, Pete Williams, you may know, suddenly shouts, holy cow, we're, the, the orders list runs from page 17 to page 50. We're missing 33 pages of the orders list. And wouldn't you know it, on the, within those 33 pages was the biggest news of the day that the court was not going to hear any of the seven same-sex marriage cases. So it was, it was quite a morning. You had report, one reporter yelling from one end of the room, where the <clears throat> is the orders <laughs> list? <laughs> so it, it can be an exciting place, even though it's a very staid place. Uh, Joan has written a book about one of what I think is uh, the more exciting justices to sit on the Supreme Court, and that's who we're going to talk about today. Uh, her book is Breaking In, and I can vouch that not only is it a wonderful book, it's also an easy read. That's what we say in our business, that there's not a lot of legalese in it. It's really the story uh, of a woman and how she got to the Supreme Court. Uh, it, you'll be able to get through it very easily, and I highly recommend it because you'll learn a lot about how our system works. But I'm going to start today, as Dale told you, Joan has written books about Justices Scalia and O'Connor, and I want to know why Justice Sotomayor? What was the genesis of the idea for the book? Thank you, Marsha, and thank you all for coming out today. Uh, I decided to try something different with this book. I didn't want to write a straight biography. I knew when I started that Justice Sotomayor was, had just undertaken her own memoir. She started around the same time I started. And I thought it would be neat to look at a political history of her rise. It occurred to me that she was born in 1954, the year of Brown v. Board of Education, which was also the year of Hernandez v. Texas. And that was the first time that the Supreme Court had said that Hispanics could be a protected class also. So she was right there as Latinos were getting extra protection. And then she enters Princeton in 1972, which happens to be the year that the US Secretary of Labor requires more minority representation on campus. In 1978, the year of Bakke, it happens to be the year that she's challenged by a law firm 
recruiting partner who says, did you just get into Princeton and Yale because you're Puerto Rican? She was right there at the time when uh, the nation was looking for more diversity, but there was also a backlash. And then in 1991, when Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York is recommending her to George H.W. Bush, it's at a moment in history where the, there's a, an interest in diversifying the federal bench. So, Marcia, my idea was to sort of trace her trajectory with the rise of Latinos in America. And I never thought that she would give me such a poignant story to end the book, because as I'm looking at her in this context, she's breaking out in a big way, not just as a justice, not just uh, breaking out as a Latino, she's now breaking out as a justice. So the last three chapters are sort of how she's made her early mark. Well, Joan, did you, when you began your research, uh, I would assume Justice Sotomayor was also working on her own memoirs or autobiography. So how, how did that intimidate you at all? And uh, did it uh, give you pause? Uh, or, or how did it affect you? Well, um, you know, the, the whole game for us is access and how much we can find out that you all wouldn't know normally from just regular news coverage. So what I try to do is get behind the scenes as much as possible. And early on, I was able to get other justices to reveal things to me, which helped. But I knew I needed her. But not only did I have the natural reluctance that any justice has, and as Marsha can tell you, they, they don't like to talk to us. They right. don't. If you, if you think about when you've seen justices speak, it's you think of when they're trying to sell books. They don't naturally come out and, and talk that much, with the wonderful exception of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I understand you'll be seeing uh, later this fall. But I had, I had the problem of trying to, first of all, win the trust of a, uh, an individual who hadn't known me before. But then I had the fact that she had her own competitive interest in being able to tell her own story. With Justice Scalia, my more recent, my uh, subject uh, just prior to Justice Sotomayor, he wasn't writing his own uh, autobiography, and he gave me 12 different interviews, and I was able to glean a lot of his personal history uh, there on the spot in his chambers. So we worked a kind of deal where she, she would let me come in and talk to her, but she was reluctant to... Um, to overtly show cooperation, she said, um, now, I'm just clarifying things for you. <laughs> and then uh, when, when some of the publicity came out about my book, uh, I know her publisher was saying, what kind of access did you give this woman? And you know, this is, uh, so we have two things going on uh, that you know well as, as being an author. You have the, uh, just the sort of quiet uh, reserve of the US Supreme Court, but then also you have uh, their interest in selling their own books. Just as an aside, I will mention that when I did mine on Justice O'Connor, who herself uh, had written her Lazy Bee memoir, the first thing she said to me were, how are sales? <laughs> so they have their own interests uh, in these things. Uh, you open the book with uh, a wonderful anecdote uh, that is very revealing about Justice Sotomayor, but also very revealing of the court itself. And I, I wondered if you would tell everybody that story. And then tell me why you decided to set the scene for your book with this particular anecdote. That's a good question. I'll, I'll tell the story and also say, just again, to clue you into the process of writing, a couple of readers who were reading for me, you know, we all have pals who read for us, didn't like that I opened it that way. And oh. now I'm so glad I did. Did they say why? Yes, and I, I'll, I'll explain because it had to do okay. with uh, Senator Moynihan's action. 
Okay, so at the end of every Supreme Court term, the, there's a, a party, and it's a very private affair in this very state institution, as, as Marcia has rightly characterized it. And during this uh, party where the law clerks are invited to and all the full-time employees are invited to, uh, the law clerks put on skits, uh, little parodies of what happened during the term, and they also have a little Jeopardy contest. And by tradition, the clerks do the skits and the justices watch. At the end of uh, Justice Sotomayor's first term, it's June 2010, and just to set the context, it was a very difficult term. They had a gun rights ruling, the Citizens United ruling came down that term, very, very stressful, and Justice uh, Ginsburg's husband, Marty, had just died three days earlier. And so here they are, they've been through a very grueling term, uh, and they were watching the skits uh, by the clerks. They're all over, and Justice Sotomayor suddenly springs up and says, well, those skits were all fine and good, but they lacked a certain something. She cues salsa music. Now, <laughs> let me just say, you know, there's no crying in baseball, there's no salsa at the Supreme Court. You know, there's, uh, this, is, this is not the kind of institution that even would have done the twist. But it's, and, and here it is, the salsa. And they're in this very formal room that Marcia knows well, where very uh, stuffy portraits of um, all the chief justices, all men in formal garb, are all in this. So she bounds up, and she, uh, she first gets some of her law clerks to salsa with her. And then she goes toward the chief justice, John Roberts, a very button-down man. And he's like thinking, oh my goodness. And, but he's a good sport. John Roberts is a very good sport. He gets up, and he does a little two-step thing, and he sits down. And then she goes one by one to all the justices. And then suddenly she shouts, where's Nino? And Justice Scalia, that's his nickname, is standing at the back. And he's shaking his head thinking, no way, no way. This woman is not going to get me to salsa. And, but she goes back to him. And by now, people are standing up and whooping. And they don't know what to make of it because you know, they all, this is a group that is uh, very orderly, very much wedded to its decorum. And, uh, but they're getting into it. And people are crying and they're laughing. But some are a little wary. And Justice Scalia is like shaking his head, no, no. But then she gets him to dance. She gets Samuel Alito to dance. And you know, you, as I was reconstructing this, talking to various justices, several of them said, I saw her approaching. And I thought, please, no, 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 no. You know? so, and then finally, she goes to Justice Ginsburg, who's just endured you know, some of the most difficult weeks of her life. Her husband had been dying. She was not going to miss a single day at the Supreme Court, and in fact, had not missed the last day of the term the day after he had passed away. And Justice Ginsburg goes up to, Justice Sotomayor goes up to Justice Ginsburg and says, dance with me. And she says, no. She's sitting there you know, in her chair. And Justice Sotomayor says, Marty would have wanted you to dance. So she gets up, and she dances a little bit. She sits down, and she takes her two hands and puts them on the cheeks of Justice Sotomayor and says, thank you. And it was quite moving. And as they're, you know, people are thinking, what do we make of this? But they got into it. And that was the thing. She got them into it. And as everyone's leaving the room, Justice Scalia says, I knew she'd be trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but he said it, he said it in jest. So. OK. So why did you open the book with this? And why were some of your readers a little put off by it? OK. So I wanted to show why it was Justice Sotomayor, who became the first Hispanic. Think of, think of how since, you know, for 20 years, presidents had been saying, I'm going to name the first Hispanic justice. And there are other Hispanics out there. But she was a person who did not wait her turn. She was assertive for herself. She was an agent for her own 
interests. And I thought that that showed her, again, kind of breaking in, being herself. Now, what some of my readers felt was that since I was telling more of a political story, that the way to start the book was with Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan and how he had engineered her appointment to the district court by a Republican president and how much of a role Justice Sonia Sotomayor played in that. I had gotten access to Senator Moynihan's papers and seen her fingerprints all over everything. This is a woman who's barely 35. You know, she'd been a, she'd been a lawyer. She'd, uh, she hadn't been an elected politician, but boy, did she ever have the political smarts to understand how her nomination was progressing and how she had to be quite an agent for herself. So they thought, you know, maybe since you're telling more of a political story, start with Senator Moynihan. But I am so glad that I didn't take that <laughs> advice. I am too. Uh, which leads me to my, my next question of you, and, and that is Justice Sotomayor, Sotomayor the lawyer. Yes. How early did she set her sights on the arc of her career, from lawyer to judge to appellate judge to Supreme Court justice? How early do you think? Did you get a sense? I did. I did. And part of this is came from statements that she had made publicly before she was even nominated by President Obama, and then little hints that she dropped in her own memoir. Uh, just to remind you about that, it really ends where my story picks up, and she at many times had talked about, you know, boy, am I lucky I was in the right place at the right time, but this was not a woman who uh, stinted on ambition, and she acknowledged that at various points. Uh, we know from her own testimony during the um, confirmation hearings that uh, you know she was a fan of Perry Mason so she loved the courtroom setting and she thought actually she'd be a defense lawyer she becomes a prosecutor instead and that's something that she admits that she had to struggle with as a Latina and a person more interested in her community and how it might be unfairly targeted by prosecutors and police she struggled with that a bit but the judge interest came uh, early also when, as a student, she realized during the civil rights era how individual uh, judges in America were helping to desegregate in a stronger way than the politicians, you know, mm -hmm. Frank Johnson and others who, she said, it, it occurred to me that one individual could have so much power for civil rights. And that, that was sort of like a light bulb going off in her head. And then what she realizes, again, she's, she reminds me a little bit of Justice O'Connor in terms of her political smarts. She realizes as a young lawyer that she has to round out her career. She can't just be a prosecutor. She has to get uh, other kind of litigation experience, which, uh, which got her into this small um, uh, intellectual property firm. And how lucky it was that one of the partners at that firm was good pals with the folks running Moynihan Screening Committee for yeah. Judges. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, Who it, you know. It, it's so true. It is yeah. so true. Well, I wondered, too, uh, uh, you know, you wrote about the careers of Justices Scalia and O'Connor, and you also have covered the confirmation hearings of the current justices. Uh, how did Justice Sotomayor's path differ? Uh, we know, she, you know, she was the first Hispanic American justice on the court, and we know that that was sort of the unique quality she brought. But in, in terms of how uh, she actually worked her way up, how did it differ from Justices O'Connor, Scalia, and even uh, Roberts and Kagan today? Um, at the same time that she's working her way up through the legal system, she's actually crossing the path of John Roberts. Um, John Roberts was a young lawyer in the 
Reagan administration, but then also in the George H.W. Bush administration, and he was part of a screening committee for her. So it's sort of interesting that in the early 90s, these two intersect, and then they intersect now. Uh, she was a, an amazing networker. I remember early on, before I was even writing the book, some of my friends in the Obama administration said, that woman's Rolodex is deeper than any of ours. She crosses <laughs> the threshold of a courthouse, she knows everyone, from the guards at the front desk to all the way to the top. And she stays in touch with them. And she, builds, she has built this very loyal network, very, very loyal network, <laughs> I have to say, in terms of trying to penetrate it in some ways. Uh, so she, she was a terrific networker. I just uh, contrast her just initially, Marsha, to the man who she succeeded, David Souter. David Souter was fortunate that uh, Warren Rudman and John Sununu, Republicans who were very tight with George H.W. Bush, helped him to the Supreme Court. But he was not a man who had trails of people who wanted to you know, help him along. Justice Sotomayor was. She built, a, she built networks everywhere she went, and uh, she, she was someone who um, had lots and lots of friends. So that's one thing she did along the way. The other thing, just to draw the contrast to uh, Justice O'Connor and Justice Ginsburg, who you referred to, she was sort of a second generation uh, um, pioneer. Justice Ginsburg, as probably most of the people in this room know, helped found the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. To take another pioneering justice, Thurgood Marshall, he helped found the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. When Justice Sotomayor became part of the Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund, she was a board member. It had already been founded. So she was sort of a second generation advocate. And she said to me that she didn't see herself as a flamethrower. She felt that she was much more of a lawyerly, uh, judicial individual working her way up that way rather than being somebody who was out front as an advocate for a cause. And I suppose in the long run that was to her benefit, yeah. especially in the uh, very partisan uh, environment we have today. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be really interesting to see someone like Justice Ginsburg come before the Senate Judiciary today uh, with the background that she had. Uh, That's right. So I suppose uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, although she had some problems during confirmation, uh, she didn't have that baggage, if, if you will. Right. Yeah. And she was smart about that. Yeah. Well, you know, it, that's what's very interesting, I think, about her. Uh, when you see her, and she is genuinely uh, a warm and engaging person, and yet uh, she is a very political person, in a sense, in, into as to how she has uh, managed her own career. It's, it's really quite fascinating. Uh, tell us a little bit about who were her mentors along the way. You mentioned uh, Senator Moynihan as right. being one, but, but tell us a little bit about how she found these mentors. She did, and many of them are sort of within the orbit of New York where we are now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in, in school, you know, she, she had the nuns at, uh, at Blessed Sacrament and the faculty at Cardinal Spellman who, who helped her along, but they were very, um, they were suspicious that she was going to go as far as she wanted. Uh, there was uh, the principal at her grade school wrote in her yearbook something to the effect of, "This girl wants to be a lawyer and to get married. What a surprise!" You know, it was, really like, it was you know, it was just such an old-fashioned, uh, doubtful thing. But uh, one thing I have said from the minute I crossed paths with her, I would never sell her short on anything she wanted to do. So she had she had a, a very tight family structure and a tight uh, neighborhood structure in the Bronx. And then she gets to, uh, she's, she's just finishing up at Princeton, and she happens to go early to Yale with a friend who was um, 
uh, doing some research, and she meets Jose Cabranes, who many of you know is on the Second Circuit, and he was, uh, he was general counsel at Yale, but he was also a faculty member, and he immediately really takes to her. Uh, some of us can't imagine some of the stereotypes of Puerto Ricans early on as a docile people, but he was very much aware of that and had written about that, about um, Puerto Ricans being one of the Latino groups that didn't have as much uh, energy and assertiveness. Again, just talking about stereotypes and him, him exploring that, he, being able to be in a position, Puerto Rican himself, to explore that. And he meets her and he's thinking, whoa. She is, she is out there. She is exactly the kind of person that we would like representing the Puerto Rican community. And they become really good friends, mentor and mentee, uh, through, throughout um, her time at Yale and afterward. And then, of course, Bar Bob Morgenthau, uh, here um, the Manhattan prosecutor, who uh, the legendary Manhattan prosecutor, who uh, took her under his wing and, to the very end, testified on her behalf in 2009. Uh, when she, uh, uh, Guido Calabrese, who is now a judge on the Second Circuit also, uh, he uh, was a Yale law professor who immediately, again, saw something in her. And I loved my interview with him where he said, um, uh, often I would have to say to his students, you know, be a little bit more assertive in that argument. Take a little more of a chance. And he said, I never had to say that to her. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, I had to say, be a little more careful. So he was another one. So she... At every point, uh, she, people would take her, uh, take her under their wing and, and want to help her along. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, that's a great thing to engender in people. Uh, uh, Antonin Scalia had his back to, backers, but I never remember people saying to him, boy, I really wanted to take care of Nino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what happened uh, with uh, Judge Cabranes mm -hmm. uh, is, is also in the book. And uh, I remember, as I've covered the court and nominations, how he always seemed to be on a president's list right. as the, possibly the first Hispanic or Latino American to be on the court. And yet, tell us. It, it really wasn't true. This is such a lesson to reporters um, uh, like Marcia and me that we, we, we take what they're telling us. You know, we think, even now for the attorney general search, you know, the different names are being leaked, and I've been trouble, trying to troubleshoot that, and in the back of my mind is, why is this name being presented to me, and why are these backers saying that he's, he's the sure front runner, or she's the sure front runner? Because, because when you go back through the papers of presidents, you see it wasn't as it seemed. And with Jose Cabranes, it wasn't as it seemed. He was, he was always delivered to us as a strong contender. But the truth was that uh, President Clinton really wasn't even looking at him. They never even interviewed him. And part of it was that the liberal groups didn't want Jose Cabranes. He had already been a district court judge and showed himself to be much more moderate than um, the, the left in the, um, the left faction of the Clinton administration wanted. And also, back then, here's another factor that I really didn't weigh, and, and you might have, Marcia, the, the um, differences among Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans and Cuban-Americans in terms of who should be the first. I want and, to talk to you a little bit about that. So okay, hold, hold your my, horses. I'll hold, I'll hold your fire. On the okay. divisions She's going to go through all my questions in okay, 10, okay. 10 minutes. I'll, I'll, hold off on, <laughs> I'll hold off on that one, and I'll just say for Jose Cabranes, he actually, uh, I think there was interest in, uh, among some people in the administration for him, but the not, not the people who were really making the decision. I always felt very sorry for him because his name was always on our lists. And it, when I read your book and I discovered how it was never uh, even close, I, I imagined how he must have felt knowing 
or reading that his name was always on a list. And right. And there was one moment uh, after uh, Stephen Breyer had been chosen in 1994 that there was a quote of President Clinton's in the Times that said that it was a, it was a blind quote by someone who uh, referred to the president saying to him, can't somebody bring me a, a Hispanic who isn't Jose Cabranes? And I thought, well, yeah, I know how that would have stung, but there it was, you yeah. know. And then I felt a little sorry for Justice Breyer, too, since he, <laughs> he wasn't exactly uh, the president's first choice uh, or enthusiastic choice That's either. right. These things, the, it, politics really comes into play. Right, exactly. Uh, you write in your book that Justice Sotomayor's life and career paralleled the activism and progress of her people. Uh, we don't have time to go over 50 years of progress in, in an hour, uh, but I wondered what surprised you in your research about Latino Americans' efforts to succeed and be influential in political circles? What did you learn about that? Okay, well, can I can I talk about differences now, among groups? Now, now you may. okay, great. Yes, yes. Because that's that is you know I'm 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 like probably most of the people in the room and probably like you thinking I'm thinking about immigration issues. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about where where do things really matter for Hispanics? And I'm thinking broadly of all the people that fit under that umbrella. And in doing research, I see how interests really vary strongly, right down to who. Who would be the first Hispanic on the Supreme Court? And there was a time early on in the 90s where Mexican Americans felt like it should be a Mexican American. It shouldn't be a Puerto Rican. It shouldn't be a Honduran like Miguel Estrada, who was nominated to the DC Circuit and might have been in place to, um, to rise to the Supreme Court uh, under a Republican administration. And tell us a little bit about, so everyone knows yes, about Miguel. Yes, Miguel Estrada, as some of you might remember, was uh, nominated by George W. Bush to the, DC, the powerful DC Circuit Court of Appeals in 2001. And I write a lot about him because he, he, he was on deck for the Supreme Court, which is one of the reasons that Democrats mobilized against him. He was Honduran and he, Mexican American, you know, I think the George W. administration thought, oh, well, won't all Hispanics jump on this bandwagon? Well, no, not at all. Mexican Americans did not, not only did not want the first um, uh, uh, Hispanic to the DC Circuit, because it, he would have been the first Hispanic on the mm -hmm. DC Circuit, uh, to necessarily be Honduran. Uh, they had much different interests, and of course, Miguel Estrada was very conservative. So his, he, he never got on. He was filibustered seven times um, by the Democratic led Senate at the time, and, uh, or by Democrats in the Senate. So what I really learned, Marsha, was a lot of the competing interests. And it wasn't until 2009, frankly, when uh, President Obama, our first African-American justice, chose Sonia Sotomayor to be the first Hispanic, that the groups really coalesced around her, mm -hmm. that they coalesced around her. And there were a couple different reasons uh, that Mexican-Americans were readier for a Puerto Rican. But that uh, I became very much aware of that. What were the reasons? Well, I think in time, uh, it was some of the realities that if there was there was not a Mexican American on deck, there was uh, early on in the uh, in the 90s there might have been some individuals who were Mexican American who could have been poised for it, but they never were embraced by the Clinton administration. And when it came time to who would actually be on deck as a uh, as the first Hispanic, happened to be two Puerto Ricans first, possibly Jose Cabranes and then Sonia Sotomayor. And I think that. Um, it was not just politics. It was that she, 
she demonstrated to them that she had their interests. She actually was very involved, smartly involved, with uh, Mexican-American concerns uh, out west. She did a lot of traveling, did a lot of speaking. When she made her famous wise Latina remark, it was at Berkeley. It wasn't here on the East Coast. It wasn't in New York with the Puerto Rican community. So uh, she, she sort of sensed what was going on in America. And, um, and I think the groups realized, too, that uh, if they wanted the first Hispanic, it was going to be Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, the Republican Party symbol is the elephant, and we know elephants are uh, a symbol for uh, long memories. And the Estrada incident uh, has lived on uh, in the Republican minds uh, as a major affront. Uh, we saw it in Justice Kagan's confirmation hearings, in which they asked her uh, if she would have supported Miguel Estrada for the U.S. Supreme Court, and she said yes, and then she was even asked if she would put that in writing. Uh, she was, and she's, she's another uh, kind of politically wise justice. So first of all, uh, Marsh is exactly right about their long memories. During the Sonia Sotomayor questioning, Lindsey Graham was among the senators who said, you know, we really didn't want you. We wanted Miguel Estrada. And she's like, yeah, OK, but I'm here. I'm here. See, that's the thing about her. You know, she's, she can take it during those hearings because all she needs to do is get her 50-some her votes. And she got a little bit more than that. But, but then the next year, in 2010, Elena Kagan, Justice Sotomayor is on the bench. Elena Kagan's there. And they ask her about Miguel Estrada, who actually was a pal of hers at Harvard, at Harvard Law School. And she wisely says not only that she would have voted for him, but then she says, as, as uh, I think it was um, Senator Coburn is thanking her, Senator Coburn from Oklahoma, Republican, is thanking her for her answer. She then quietly slips in, at least I think I would. Who knows what politics I would have been up against? And I thought that's exactly right. She said, yes. who, she said something to the fact of, who knows what, what you all, you political actors, are subject to? I'd like to think I would have, but who knows? Right, exactly. Which is accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so contrast her with Elena Kagan today and the difference in their political smarts. Oh, they're very different. I, I like to say that uh, Justice Sotomayor often regards herself as one among nine. Uh, it, it, she's one among nine, but she set herself apart from, from, the, um, from her other eight colleagues. She's out there um, as an individual that, who you've all recognized through her memoir and through her many speeches. She has her chambers up above all the others and this special third floor suite. And she kind of has a separate floor mentality in many ways. And she's broken from even her liberal colleagues on several rulings. Justice Kagan, I think, sees herself much more as working in a collective process. She has yet to write separately uh, uh, distinguishing her views from, for example, Justice Ginsburg, our senior liberal. She's always looking at the process in a collective manner, trying to figure out where she can bridge differences rather than where she can set herself aside. Uh, she seems to be um, very much in the mode of a Justice Brennan, for example. Uh, she was a law clerk to Thurgood Marshall. She knows how the justices operate in terms of the collective deliberations that go on. I would say she's uh, on the substance of the law. Justice Kagan is not as liberal, consistently liberal, as Sonia Sotomayor. So that's another difference, right, too. Right, right. When Justice Sotomayor was nominated, and we all started looking at her background and her, her, her time on uh, the, the lower courts, uh, she seemed perfectly qualified for the Supreme Court. And yet, 
there really wasn't anything that stood out or, or jumped out in, in terms of what she had done on the courts. Uh, you know, no uh, really path-breaking mm -hmm. ruling. Uh, and I, I wondered, uh, what, was there, what besides the fact that she was uh, Latina that sold President Obama on her? Can you, from your research, can you tell us what was going on at the time in the White House and how he reacted? Okay, bringing you back to that summer of 2009, he knows the other tight contenders. I, you know, there were a group of um, a group of about six, and most of them were women. Although Merrick Garland on the D.C. Circuit had been considered for a while, but he really gets down to Elena Kagan, Diane Wood on the Seventh Circuit, based in Chicago, and Sonia Sotomayor. Now he knows. Elena Kagan and Diane Wood from Chicago when he, um, when he was a community organizer there and also taught part-time at the University of Chicago. And he really likes Diane Wood. Diane Wood is more senior to Sonia Sotomayor. She's more embraced by the liberals. She has done a lot of academic writing. Uh, she's more of the traditional nominee. Uh, she also happens to be you know, a white Protestant woman from Chicago. So she doesn't have the, the story as much as Sonia Sotomayor. So he's, he's interviewing everyone, and he has never met Sonia Sotomayor. And he's, what he's getting um, is reports from, for example, um, you know, legal, smart legal thinkers about how competent Sonia Sotomayor is. But some other people are dropping uh, him notes and writing things that would shed some doubt. Uh, we all know that um, uh, the New Republic ran a piece, The Case Against Sonia oh, yes. Sotomayor. Yes by Jeff Rosen, in which he, he questioned um, uh, you know, just how strong of a jurist she would be. We found out after the fact that Larry Tribe, one of uh, Barack Obama's mentors at Harvard, was dropping him a note that said, I know your political instincts will be to appoint the first Hispanic, but let me just caution you. He was, this letter from Larry Tribe was an effort to boost the chances of Elena Kagan, who he knew. But as he was boosting the chances of Elena Kagan, he was saying, uh, Sonia Sotomayor might be a bully from the bench. She's not as smart as she thinks she is. So he's, the president is getting this kind of thing. But at the same time, going back to your good question about her networks, Guido Calabresi is telling the administration, um, Judge Guido Calabresi is telling the administration, you're going to hear a lot of this. But it's sexist. And let me tell you how smart she is. So uh, she had smart people vouching for her. Uh, Guido Calabresi, Barrington Parker also on the Second Circuit, Bob Katzman also for the Second Circuit saying, remember, she won the Pine Prize at Princeton, the top award there for undergraduates. Um, look at what she's done. She is a solid judge. She's been uh, on the lower uh, federal courts for 17 years. So he has, the president's getting a couple different signals. So that meeting, Marsha, between the president and Sonia Sotomayor, kind of had to go well. And this is what she did. She prepared like nobody's business. She went back and read transcripts from, um, from confirmation hearings. She's not even being subject to a confirmation hearing at this point, but she wants to know what kinds of questions are going to come up. She has her clerks, her former clerks, and current, uh, mostly former clerks, who again are all rallying behind her, give her lots of questions and try to prepare her. And she, she is leaving no stone unturned. Mm -hmm. And she told me that she was so on for that interview. And then in the end, it was, uh, it was one of the best. She said she compared it only to the one she had with Senator Moynihan. And they really clicked. And 
the president's aides told me that it went on for nearly an hour or more, and they knew that once he was with her more than 20 minutes, things were working. Because he's the kind of man who's like, you know, look, if this isn't going well, I got other things to do. You know, so it, it went on. And later, what he said was that he was, he was impressed by her community connection still. He knew what it was like, of course, in his own personal life to be part of a community who he wanted to keep bond, bond, um, keep bound to, but wanted to also move out in the world. And he was impressed by how she had worked that balance. Yeah, I, uh, I, when I was working on my book, I interviewed uh, Justice John Paul Stevens. And one of the questions I asked him, it was shortly after Justice Sotomayor had gone on the uh, Supreme Court bench, you know, what, what do you think? And he said to me, he said, you know, he said, it wasn't love at first sight, but it was close. <laughs> Great. And then he also said, and this fits what you said about her preparation for the president, yeah. he said she goes into the justices' conferences meticulously prepared. She has, and demands the same of her clerks. A former clerk told me that, you know, in some of the justices' chambers, clerks, you know, write brief mem memos about cases, but she wants memos that have chapters and footnotes. <laughs> so she, uh, she really does prepare well for those yeah. things. Um, she has, uh, to sort of come back now onto the court, uh, in your book, you, you devote some time to her uh, statement that we, we certainly have heard before, uh, that she has called herself the perfect affirmative action baby. And uh, that was fine when we first heard it. And then in the uh, recent term, we, we've, we really got a sense of what she means by that. Uh, but I wanted to ask you uh, uh, to contrast her with Justice Thomas. And uh, gee, I wonder what kind of conversations they have in the conference <laughs> I think most of you know that he feels that affirmative action's time has come and gone and maybe should have never been there in the first place. He feels that it has really stigmatized people and it stigmatized him. He had a very different experience at Yale, feeling like people believed that he was there only because he's an African-American and that even with his Yale law degree, he had a trouble getting a job because he felt like people thought that he only was admitted and uh, succeeded there because of his skin color. So he is very much against affirmative action. She embraces it. She says, look, the reason she was the perfect affirmative action baby in her mind is that she took advantage of it, that she, she got in through a door and then she showed that she deserved to be there. And she said it was very painful to her at the time of her confirmation, to have people second-guessing her and saying, you're being chosen only because of this, or you know, what kind of judge are you anyway compared to these white men or white women or whatever. And she felt like the only reason that people second-guessed her on qualifications was because she was Hispanic. And she has written, she, when she goes out and talks about affirmative action, she certainly says that it's necessary. But uh, just last year was the first time she put it in writing, yes. in an opinion, about how much race and ethnicity still matters. And she had this line that, um, as Marcia knows, I found out was part of an earlier opinion uh, she wrote. But she essentially said, race matters. Race matters because of the snickers, the slights, the doubts that make an individual feel, I do not belong. And she put that in an actual opinion, uh, a decision, almost speaking, you know, speaking in the third person. But I, I felt like it was the kind of thing she could have said of herself when she was out giving speeches. Yes, and, and this all came out in a dissent that she wrote 
an, a dissent that was assigned by Justice Ginsburg, who was the senior justice in dissent in this particular case. And as the senior justice in dissent, she has the uh, responsibility or power to either assign the dissent to herself or to someone else. But she assigned it to Justice Sotomayor because she felt that Justice Sotomayor could speak to this issue. And it was a powerful dissent, and it sort of ticked off the Chief Justice because she play, did a play on one of his famous lines in another race case, race-related case, in which he said, uh, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And she said, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to talk about race, to have conversations right. about race. Then he wrote a separate little concurrence in this decision, just focused on her dissent, in which you know, he, he was saying that he felt that she was questioning the motivations of those who disagreed right. with her. But it was unusual for him to write that, and you could tell he was quite annoyed that she'd done that. He was, and one thing I discovered is that a version of it this statement and this dissent had actually been written a year earlier, and it never saw the light of day. But it actually caused her more conservative colleagues to back down in the University of Texas affirmative action case. And I just want to mention, because this crowd, you know, I, I know from everything that uh, many of you were saying when we were out in the lobby, is very aware of reporting and a longtime coverage of the court, and you've all followed uh, Marsha on the NewsHour for many, many years. But when I found out about it, it was a very unusual way. One of my themes of my book was going to be how she's very much of an advocate when she's writing her own, when she's writing her memoir and she's out on the stump, that she'll, talk, she'll take on ethnicity and race much more than when she's at the court. Because just to remind you, she has never written in an immigration case. That's she's it. never written separately. She had never broken out. So I was in these series of interviews that I was able to do in the justices' chambers, uh, this interview with another justice, I said, you know, but, but she hasn't taken those kinds of themes that she's uh, been so proud of on the stump into her writing on the court. And this justice looked at me and said, you don't know what happened in Texas, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and um, through, through a series of reporting and going back to various justices, I was able to recreate what happened in this conference, uh, which... You know, for those of us on the inside, this is a great scoop. It's it's yeah, it's a great scoop. A lot of average people reading saying, "Well, don't they always tell you those things?" <laughs> <laughs> they don't tell us anything, but it was, but it it goes to show how you can you can have some false impressions just from sitting out there. We never know what really happens until we unless we're able to get inside. And what I acknowledge in the book is that you still never really know what happens unless you get the documents. And one day, one of those justices will pass away and give his or her papers to the Library of Congress, and then we'll all know if we're still here. <laughs> and probably we won't be for Justice Souter, who has said 50 years yes, after, right. he, yeah. after he dies or after he left the court. 50 years to see his papers. Yeah. Uh, but that was a fascinating uh, case. We, in the press, we were uh, waiting for this decision in the University of Texas case. And uh, it was taking months and months. And then when it came out, it was seven to one. And you sit there and you think, why? Why did it take so long? And then Joan fi finally found out the answer for us and the role of Justice Sotomayor behind the scenes. Uh, and 
initiating, triggering what was ultimately a compromise that saved affirmative action, at least for now. Uh, we're getting close to the end, but I, I, there are two other things I, I really wanted to get in. Uh, throughout your book and her story, Justice Sotomayor speaks of and uh, appears to continue to have this need uh, to prove that she is as smart as the next justice uh, and, and qualified for the court. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about you know, here she is, she's now right. on the Supreme Court. I mean, she's got it made. What is the source of that continuing insecurity or vulnerability that she displays? And uh, is it because the comments that have been made are really racist? And Two this things. is something she may share, actually, with Justice Thomas. That's right, that um, a lot of doubts. And yes. two things I'd say on that is I actually asked her about it. I asked um, about the fact that she still brings it up. And at one point um, in late 2010, after that salsa incident, as a matter of fact, she was out speaking to students. And one student uh, asked her if she feels like she fits in now, because she was talking about how she didn't feel like she fit in at Princeton or Yale. And just Sotomayor says to the student, do you ever really feel like you fit in when you're that different? And I said, you know, just kind of along the lines of what you just said here, Marsha, you know, you've arrived, you've shown, you, you have gotten where so few people have gotten, you know, only, you know, just a little more than 100 people have been appointed for life on the nation's highest court. You know, think of all the people who wanted to be there. And uh, she said, when you, when you come from, what I've come from, you feel the need to affirm that you have value. And then the other thing, so she, she does still feel that. She still feels that. But the other thing that is so true is that it is the, the second guessing is still so present. And I found it when I was writing this um, from people telling me things. And, and what I feel even now when, you know, when people are reading the book and responding to it. I thought when I wrote about Justice Scalia, I was writing about the most polarizing justice. But not at all. The ethnicity and race at the heart of um, Justice Sotomayor's story still really uh, prompts strong reactions from both ends. I had people say to me, and even some readers say, well, don't you think she really kind of worked the system? Don't you think she? And you know, they, they wouldn't say that of Elena Kagan, who, of course, right, you know, she worked the system in her own way to get on. Right. Uh, there's, there's still, there are still doubters out there. And then it's at the opposite end where I, if I say anything about the fact that this was one smart political woman, well, aren't you, aren't you uh, second-guessing your qualifications? No. I mean, this is an am amalgam of characteristics that gets somebody to where, where she sits on the Supreme Court, including for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And who Ruth Bader Ginsburg had was Marty Ginsburg, who was her agent for life, right. certainly, and, um, and helped, her, helped her get on. But it's, uh, I think it's a combination, and it's just what you said, uh, both where she comes from and what she still hears. I think she still hears it, because I certainly heard it myself about her. Well, and that sort of brings me to the final question. Um, you write that some justices, and this, this, this I think is a quote, I hope, some justices said they believed her dominant presence on the bench and in conference was an attempt to challenge the doubters, to prove that she was prepared for cases. Others, however, said they believed her manner undercut her ability to work toward consensus. Did you get a sense from your interviews mm -hmm. that any of the justices was still a doubter? 
And you don't have to name names unless you want to whisper in my no. ear later. But <laughs> no. Well, I had an interesting thing happen with the other justices on this. When I was doing my interviews for the O'Connor book and for the Scalia book, most of their colleagues spoke for the record. They had no problem speaking for the record. And I think part of it was that you know they, both of them had been on the court for more than 20 years. Uh, it, their views of them, they could articulate. They felt that it was okay to to say it, even though, um, you know, even for the record, I loved when Justice Ginsburg said, you know, I love Nino, but I'd like to strangle him. Or, uh, <laughs> or Justice John Paul Stevens would say, oh my gosh, that's just him. You know, like, you know, so they, they actually had no problem saying that. Even people who wanted to speak favorably about Justice Sotomayor just didn't want to speak for the record. And I think in part it was her newness, and it was also this, this thing that's still happening with the ethnicity. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody doubts her qualifications. I actually don't. Uh, you know, look, they all, they all think there's, as individuals, they probably think they're more competent than the next, but uh, uh, they, I don't think any, I think they don't doubt her authenticity, they don't doubt her work ethic, and they don't doubt her, um, her abilities. Uh, and I'm using the word abilities, you know, broadly as I think about different things that all of them have said across the spectrum. And in terms of the uh, various personality issues that emerge even during the um, oral arguments, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to cast some of the prickly differences. And the way I ended up casting it was in the context of any group of nine, where you're going to have um, some human personal tensions. And we all know about those. We all know in our own press corps uh, who we'd rather be on panels with than others. Right. <laughs> and we want to be on a panel together. Um, uh, who, you know, so so there, the differences in the human level were not small. They're not small. There's still some, some people who think, you know, boy, look at her. You know, it's all about me, 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 me. I mean, you know, that's, those are the kinds of things that sometimes some of them would say. But on the larger scheme of the law, those differences are small. So, you know, again, think of, think of your own workplace and think of how you get along. And, and that's how it is for the justices. They're as human as any other group. And so they're going to be, they will be rolling their eyes. And sometimes Marcia and I even see them rolling their eyes during questioning from the bench. Uh, but when, when they are together and someone like me is trying to penetrate that, they will close ranks on these personality things. And when it comes to the law, uh, no one's going to withhold a vote of Sonia Sotomayor's to, to, to an opinion of hers because, because she danced salsa, because she made them dance. But I do say at the very end of the book, when, when she asked them to dance, they got up and followed, but will they follow on the law? I actually think that... Um, uh, someone with the skills of Justice O'Connor, who was constantly trying to uh, work within the group and trying to bring bridge differences, uh, she might ultimately have been more effective than Justice Sotomayor will be, but we're still early on. That's the other caution I would have. I was going to ask you, you know, what should we be looking for in terms of what you think she's going to bring to the court in maybe particular areas of the law? Where do you think she could emerge as, as, as a strong voice? I think she really wants to set herself apart from the others and be, be a leader on criminal procedure. She, she has the background of a big city prosecutor, but she also has the background of a Latina and knows that fair processes are what matters for um, the poor, the disenfranchised, the people who get in trouble. So she has already written several separate statements encouraging the justices to pay more attention to criminal procedure. So that's one area. The other thing I think we should watch for is that right now I think it's a little bit of a race between her and Justice Ginsburg over, over who's staking out the furthest left position and who will break from the pack on things. And I 
and uh, give voice to an even more liberal view of what's needed in the law. And I think we might see Justice Sotomayor continue to distinguish herself that way. Okay, a personal question. Sure. I, did, I haven't had the chance to interview her yet. Uh -huh. Now, I know that sometimes the justices' personalities are reflected in their chambers. For example, Justice Scalia and his elk head yeah. on the wall. <laughs> right. Justice Ginsburg has amazing art from all over the world on the walls of her chamber. What does Justice Sotomayor's chambers look like? Okay, I'll tell you what it looks like and then what it feels like, because okay. it feels really different. <laughs> okay, first of all, she has beautiful art on the wall too. First, um, she's up on the third floor, which is an airier, lighter part of the building, uh, so she's got a lot of natural light that the other chambers that are more uh, dark wood and clubby um, don't have. And she has a lot of uh, Puerto Rican art on the walls. She's, uh, the, the overall tone is sort of gold, peachy kind of things. She has this cool bathroom that she's put this above, uh, above counter sink in. She's got this little break room that has pictures of her from Sesame Street. She's got all the pictures of her, you know, throwing out various balls to the Yankees and, and different <laughs> things like that around. So it's, it's very personal to her. And then there is so much going on. So much going on. You walk in and you feel like you're in Grand Central Station because she's got, um, she always has all, friends stopping by to visit. Um, her incredibly competent staff is always like down to the minute on different things. She's also uh, monitoring her diabetes at the same time. So people are aware of, um, I, I took, I put this in, took it out, put this in, took it out. I ended up taking this out. I decided it was a little too personal, but I originally had put into the book her staff talking to her about having um, checked her blood sugar and wanting to know if she needed juice and things like that. And again, I, I thought that kind of humanized the chambers and then I thought it would be too much to include uh, given, given sort of where I was going with the book. But you have some of that happening. And uh, she, she's on the clock. She's on the mm -hmm. clock because she's trying to squeeze so many things in. And I can see why she's working on her opinions late at night because she's got all these these other things day. happening. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take questions and answers. So if you have any questions, you can go to the mics at either side of the room, and I'll give you a little time by asking one final question. And that is, uh, what do you think of her now that you've spent so much time uh, delving into her career? Did you come away liking her? I Off did. Off the record. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have, I have a lot of respect for her. I have a lot of respect for where she came from, what she's, what she's overcome. Uh, like is a big word. Uh, there certainly were tensions in some of our discussions. When I went to her and told her what I found out about the University of Texas case, she was really angry. And I thought, I thought to myself, I gotta make this work out in this session. I cannot leave this session until, until she understands why I found this out. Because see, she, as, as I mentioned early on, she and I had not had a prior relationship. Like, as I had had with, all the, with many of the other justices. You know, I'd been around for a long time. I had multiple, multiple interviews with most of her colleagues. So I needed to convince her that the reason people told me things was that they had trusted me and they trusted me to use them in the correct context. And, that, and I kept saying, nobody told me what they told me to undercut you. You know, they were, it, it came about, it originally came about to sort of help me with an impression that was wrong. And, and I was very careful. I, I had to sort of unspool it in a way that would win her trust and not her, and, and not her anger. And also, I didn't, what I was afraid of, I was afraid she was going to 
go into the conference and say, who said what to Joan? You know, yeah, and I, yeah. and then I thought, oh, great, then I'll let the chief all over, you know, like then, you know, like you just don't want that habit. You know, I'm there trying to write about these people. So I, I ended up spending, saying, but I, I want to keep talking about this. I want to, I, I really wanted to explain to her what I needed to know. And then what I did was I said, I will make clear in the book that you did not reveal any of the private discussions. And I did, I followed through. I, I have an end note that explains how I got the information, why I'm doing it anonymously, the limits of the information I got. Because I said, you know, I, I wanted to be really upfront with my readers saying, until you actually see documents, you don't know what you really got. You see it through the, I, I, a majority of justices spoke to me, but I also said some wouldn't, some wouldn't speak to me about it, so. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay, let's take some questions. I'll start with you, sir. Uh, <clears throat> I just had a question <clears throat> about her personal characteristics. Sure. You stress that she's a tremendous reader of people, very strategic, prepares in great detail, and knows every nuance of, of meetings. Does she exude that in the Supreme Court? She has an office on the third floor, and the question is, is she mingling with the other justices in a way that would make them, you know, be more sympathetic to her views and be more of a, of, of a glue person than she is? So she sounds like she's on the edges, and that may be her signature, but is that the success? I mean, she must figure out how she wants to succeed in the Supreme Court. And a companion question is, if Hillary doesn't run, is she going to be the next woman president? <laughs> Good questions. I'll do the second first because that's uh, that that'll be quicker. Uh, she has said to me, you know, people say I should be a politician, I should run, and uh, and she said, no, no, I, I'm doing what I'm doing. She so so, but that comes up. That comes up. Okay, now in terms of the social glue, I I covered the uh, exhibit A for social glue at the court, and that was Sandra Day O'Connor. Sandra Day O'Connor, when she comes on the bench, she said, "Now we're all going to have lunch together after oral arguments," and she got it all. She got it all. She she insisted on that. She insisted that. Uh, they would go on field trips together. She was constantly uh, arranging bridge parties, trips to trips to the theater, and uh, you know, there there was. She was also an athlete, so she was always also challenging him to various tennis matches. Justice O'Connor was completely into all that. Now, Justice Sotomayor, her very first conference. Um, uh, which is a private meeting. Uh, the it's the justices just by themselves, no clerks, no secretaries. She did bring in cookies uh, from an Italian bakery in Brooklyn, which was kind of smart for our two Italian-American justices, uh, Samuel Lito, Lito and Antonin Scalia. So she's, she's made gestures like that. She invites them to various things. Uh, I, I just want to say one thing. I've made a big deal about the third floor chamber uh, because it, it sort of reinforces the personality of Justice uh, Sotomayor, but Justice Ginsburg once upon a time was up there too. But with her, she um, she sort of wanted uh, more room for her clerks and again a lighter area um, chambers. And she's now down uh, uh, among among her colleagues now on the on the second floor of the building. So I think that she's not Justice Sotomayor isn't against taking those steps, and I think she knows she needs to take more of them. She has talked about how she's aware that they think that she's quite interruptive on the bench and that she doesn't let somebody finish a sentence. And she says, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But uh, <laughs> uh, she's working on other things a little bit more. <laughs> uh, how about over this side? I think he was here first. Oh, really? OK, sorry. Flip, Flip a coin? No, um, OK, you can go. Uh, good morning. Good morning. I have more or less a little technical question. Sure. 
uh, one of the professors from Princeton University expressed dismay that graduate students know nothing about, uh, or very little about, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Uh, the surprise is that this little booklet contains entire constitution with 27 amendments and entire declaration of independence and seems to be discrepancy, why can't they read it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, from what I understand, 200 years ago they were teaching at the grammar school the civic duties and how to read the a constitution of the United States. So my question is where we went wrong when we have so many uh, problems with interpreting constitution. One of the famous authors wrote the unwritten constitution which is like 900 pages and this is in this little booklet which is only 20 pages or less. Well, uh, <laughs> That's, that, that may be above my pay grade in terms of where we went wrong. Uh, but I think your concerns are shared by Justices O'Connor and Justice Souter, who since they have left the bench, have made a point of traveling and talking about the need to uh, reinvigorate or even restore civics education in our schools. I mean, I remember taking civics, but my children didn't take civics now, they did study government, uh, but it's different. Uh, and uh, I think it probably just got lost as uh, uh, educators started changing the curriculum uh, and trying to make it uh, more, try to adapt it more to what students may be facing in the coming years. But I think Justices O'Connor and Souter have it exactly right, and that's why they're so concerned uh, about the need for more civics. This little booklet is distribu distributed. I have free. that little booklet. Free. Yes, I do. Yeah. Free at the several. New Hampshire, <laughs> given free. <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. Um, during uh, during Justice Sotomayor's confirmation hearing, a lot of attention was paid to the um, speeches she had made. I think it's more than one speech, yeah. talking about a wise Latina. Um, can you comment about, I, I think that, that view was, you know, her statement was taken completely out of context, but can, can you <coughs> comment about the context, about the statement, about how it was perceived at the time, and whether you talked to her about that, um, you know, in the course of your interview for the book? Does that still, does that bother her? Does it still bother her if it bothered her at the time? It's so interesting how, um the comments that someone can make, you know, in a public speech, public setting to, frankly, a mostly Hispanic group. It was part of a, a, a Hispanic session at Berkeley in 2001, can take on a life of its own. And especially since you're exactly right, she had said variations of that for many, many years back to when she was just a trial judge. Uh, I asked her about it because I, I wanted to figure out the whole setting, you know, what was going on at Berkeley at the time it was in October of 2001. And when I spoke to the justice about it, we, we both realized that it was right after, it, it was one of the few flights she had taken right after September 11th. You know, and obviously she's here in New York, so I use that as the context. So she flies out to Berkeley 
for this conference. And at the time, this is 2001, you know, she's a, a, on the Second Circuit. Uh, she's probably one of the most prominent Hispanic justices out there, but she's not super well known. And the speech is essentially a cut and paste job from many other speeches that she had given. And, you know, talking about uh, her own childhood memories of eating pig's feet and uh, the Latino music in her, in her household and all that. And then she says, uh, she talks about the, she's talking about the value of diversity. It's in that context, the value of diversity in all sorts of public settings, including on the bench. And then she says that comment that she would hope with the wisdom and experience that a wise Latina would have, that she would hope she would make a better decision. Now, the problem was for that speech that got everybody's eye eyebrows raised is the idea a better decision. And again, just isolated, as you know well, if I remember right, you, you actually had to review it as part of your own work. Um, you know, that, that made even her White House uh, backers, you know, gave them a little bit of a pause. A better decision, would somebody who had those experiences really do that? And what she, what she, was, what she said to me later and what she had said to many people later, including many Republican senators who challenged her on it, is she was trying to embolden people in the audience. She wanted to give them a boost. Uh, I spoke to people who were in the audience at the time who said, you know, it, we weren't even struck by that line. There were many other lines that might have gotten more attention. But it was one she sort of had to swallow for those confirmation hearings. She had to back away from it. She had to say, I think her standard line was, my rhetorical device failed. You know, for these, you will notice if you cover these hearings that there's a certain line they all get down. My rhetorical device failed. Yes, again, my rhetorical device failed. So, you know, I think she, she hated having, she hated, 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 hated having to back away from that. But you have to do a lot of things to get confirmed. And that was a small one, frankly, in the whole scheme of things. But uh, she, she had said it in earlier contexts, uh, valuing, first of all, just women. One of her earlier lines was, I would hope a woman with all of her experience would say, uh, would do this. And it was, uh, she was piggybacking, frankly, on something that a, a Minnesota state court judge, um, who has a name almost the same as yours, Marsha. It was, Mar it was uh, Marsha Coyne mm -hmm. uh, had said, or Marion Coyne, because I remember every time I would double, go back and double check it, and this woman has pa since passed away, but she was on the Minnesota State Supreme Court, and she had given this wise woman speech that Justices Ginsburg and O'Connor had picked up on. So it had become sort of lore among a lot of women judges out there. And then Justice Sotomayor, Judge, then Judge Sotomayor kind of fashioned it for her own message. But it was a message that uh, didn't translate well over to the confirmation hearings. And it was a lesson for this kind of speaker that she's constantly speaking to many different groups. And if she was here today, she'd probably be saying things that she would never say in opinions, but yet she would say for the audience. Yes, sir. Um, I have a sort of a general Supreme Court question for both of you, and that's the role of dissents. Do they have some practical effect, or are they more like a primal scream from the people who lost? <laughs> Uh, he's asking about the role of dissents. Oh, dissents. Um, he asked whether they were some sort of primal <laughs> scream. Or, uh, 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 Justice Scalia, we'd say it's a primal scream. Yes. Uh, and uh, they can be both, and they are both. You get, we get our most colorful, engaging writing in dissents because uh, you don't have to have many people sign on. When you're writing a majority opinion, you have to make sure that everybody is cool with your rhetoric. So um, what the justices will tell you at any point is that they would love for their dissent to become a majority opinion down the road. Right. They say they're writing for the future. I'll tell you a funny little story. Years ago, uh, when I first started covering the court, uh, my bureau at the time, there were four of us. We'd have a little Christmas dinner 
together because uh, our main office was in New York and we were never invited to the Christmas party. So we were allowed to go out for dinner. And we were in a restaurant in DC at the time called Galileo, a really good Italian mm -hmm. restaurant. Mm -hmm. And several tables away from us was sitting Justice Scalia with a friend. And he was finishing up his dinner and we were really just starting. And so we said, oh, you know, we should send something over to the table. It's Christmas, right? It's not a bribe, you know. It's, so let's let's offer an after dinner drink to him and his guests. So the, we called the waiter over, and the waiter said, okay. So he went over, and, and then the waiter came back and and said, well, he he declined. And of course we thought, oh boy. Well, after Justice Scalia finishes up, he comes over to the table and he says, well, I want to thank you uh, for the offer, but uh, I have to go back to the court and write an opinion. Now, if it were a majority opinion, I would have taken the uh, after dinner <laughs> drink, but I'm writing a dissent and I have to have my wits about. It's so great. <laughs> yes, sir. Questions <clears throat> question to both of you. Every day we hear about our dysfunctional Congress. And about every month, we hear about these contentious confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court. And I'd like to know what each of you think ought to be done to improve that situation. <laughs> I don't know if anything can be done. And in fact, I have already entertained the notion that if, for some reason, something happened to one of the current nine, uh, this late as we are into President Obama's second term, I just wonder who he could appoint that would, who will get on. Yeah. Uh, these are lifetime appointments. Cases come down to a single vote. So much is at stake. I don't see these things getting smoother and easier. I see them getting harder. And especially, uh, especially when it's someone who's right at the middle of the court. Uh, we all remember what happened when Lewis Powell stepped down in 1987 and President Reagan initially chose Robert Bork. Lewis Powell was the center of that court. When Anthony Kennedy goes, and he's, he's just 78, so we don't anticipate that he's going anytime soon, but uh, the stakes are very, very high, and uh, as I said, I think things might get worse before they get better. I, I agree, and uh, I know that there have been various proposals recently uh, that, that try to tempt down uh, what's been going on. For example, uh, some law professors have floated a proposal that there should be term limits, uh, that if you had more turnover on the court on a regular basis, each vacancy would not become the big deal that it has become. Uh, but that hasn't uh, gained any traction in Congress, uh, the, and the justices uh, under the Constitution have uh, uh, tenure for good behavior, which is generally life. Uh, so uh, I, I agree with Joan. I, I don't see much of anything happening, uh, partly because we do have this gridlock in Congress. Uh, I think we're stuck with what we've got. And it's unfortunate in a way because we have presidents then looking for uh, nomin nominees who may not offend anybody mm -hmm. and may not really be focusing on the best and the brightest because they have written something or said something in the past that will make them uh, controversial. But as Joan said, I, I think it is the way it is and it's yeah. not going to get better. Sorry to be so pessimistic. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, can you hear me all right? Yeah, yes. thank you. Uh, growing up, I, I always thought that the Supreme Court was the Supreme Court of these seven wise men. Oh, pardon me, wrong number. Uh, uh, where the 
it didn't really make that much difference because they had the interests of the country, so they would work it out. And now I feel, as I think a lot of people do, that it has been so political or politicized that uh, it only depends whether you are a Republican or a Democrat or a conservative or a liberal, and that we don't get the best people except those who, in their early years, don't take any stands to, to offend anybody. That, that is a, a sense of a lot of people. And we have the, uh, the distinction of this court that all five conservatives were appointed by Republican presidents, and all four liberals were appointed by Democratic presidents. Up until uh, 2010, there was some variation, because Justice John Paul Stevens, for example, was named in 1975 by Republican Gerald Ford. And he had become one of the more liberal members of the bench. Ditto with David Souter, who was appointed in 1990 by George H.W. Bush and again became one of the more liberal members. So you could, you could say, well, politics isn't completely playing out, whereas now they're polarized exactly along political lines. And I actually think, though, that the justices are sensitive to that, some of that criticism, including Chief Justice Roberts. Now, there were probably a lot of factors that went into his vote on the Obama sponsored health care law in 2012, when he was with, joined the liberals in that majority. And there's probably been a lot of things that have gone into his decisions to try to move a little bit more incrementally in some areas. I would stress some areas, certainly not on race. Um, but I think in the back of his mind are concerns for uh, just those kinds of comments about the institution looking too politicized. Oh, I agree. And I think, I think he does strive for some consensus mm -hmm. and even though uh, we tend to focus on the high profile cases that often break down 5-4 along ideological lines. They're usually the, just the, the biggest cases, the cases we think people are most interested in. And we forget that really across the, the, the work of the court, there is a tremendous amount of consensus. In fact, more than 50% of the court's decisions every term are either unanimous or 7-2 or 6-3. And that's, uh, that's uh, I think, uh, quite notable. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I'm just getting back to Justice Sotomayor. I'm curious about the, the uh, composition of her clerks, hmm. um, her criteria for selecting them and their backgrounds. Question. That's a great question. And it brings me right back to the fact that she's more like the lower court judge that she wants to say she is than somebody who's really breaking ground for other people. She's taking them from feeder judges, lower court judges, just like the rest are. Just for the, some of you who might not know how the law clerk system works at the Supreme Court, which is a, a really important part of their work. For one year, uh, each year they hire four new clerks, and they tend to be the cream of a law school crop. They tend to be, uh, many, many, many of them are Ivy League uh, uh, trained. They typically have clerked for a lower court judge, uh, a prestigious lower court judge, and they are the ones that help the justices with their research, help the justices with their drafts. They're great sounding boards for the justices. And uh, in the last couple decades, there's been a real feeder system that's worked out where there's been prominent lower court judges who have been able to place their young clerks with the justices. And Justice Sotomayor is using that system herself. 
Now, there have been judges in the justices in the past, for example, William Rehnquist and Byron White, and currently now uh, uh, Clarence Thomas, who like the idea of branching out and finding the top student at the University of Georgia or the top student out in Colorado and, and like more diversity among their clerks. But Justice Sotomayor, uh, again, uh, maybe not wanting to take any chances, uh, is sort of doing things traditionally. I know that she tried early on to have a Spanish-speaking assistant, uh, kind of administrative assistant in her chambers, but I don't know if how much she's looking for diversity in her clerks. Uh, they have come under criticism yes. uh, for lack of diversity among their clerks for a long, long time, and what they say is uh, they, they feel like their hands are tied because they want to take someone with experience, and they say uh, this should start earlier on with who who clerks for lower court judges. But isn't that, isn't that interesting that you know, she would, she's not breaking the mold there? Uh, any other questions? Okay. I think we're I, about oh, ready to, okay. Any, <laughs> other, away, any, any, any other thoughts about any of the other justice, justices on the Supreme Court? I don't know, anything currently? else? I mean, Joan, it's your book. Anything else you want to say? Well, it's so interesting. Buy it. <laughs> no, it is. Well, here, this is what I want to say. You know, I wrote these two other books on O'Connor and Scalia, and I peddled them among my family and all sorts of friends. And I cannot believe how many people in my family were like, this one's actually interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I think when you said it's a good read, it is. And fortunately, there was an advantage of writing about someone who hadn't done that much with her legal opinions. So I didn't for yet one more time have to write about Bush v. Gore. Right. <laughs> Well, Joan Biskupic, Marsha Coyle, thank you so much for a great morning talk. Thank you.